Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing Chapter 18, Fog and Ice, Chapter 19, Captivity, and Chapter 20, Mortal Kombat. if you have the British uh, edition of the book, it might be called Ah Otrans. I have no idea how to say that, so I don't know what I just spoke. Does yours go into the techno music? It's like Mortal Kombat. <laughs> I was gonna yeah. say, was that like a copyright thing? <laughs> well, oh, that would be I weird. genuinely don't know because <laughs> I just genuinely don't know. Also, Mortal Kombat, isn't that spelled with a K? The video game? Oh yeah, it is. good point. I think it actually in our doc here says that it's misspelled because it's not with a K. <laughs> so this week in chapter 18, the chapter opens with Lee and Serafina having a talk about what's going to happen. And Serafina mentions to Lee that all of them have been fighting in a war already without knowing it. Lee doesn't take kindly to that and says that he likes to choose whether to fight or not and who he's fighting for. This leads to a conversation about destiny versus choice, and Serafina mentions the prophecy about Lyra and how she must know nothing about it in order to fulfill it. Lyra is destined to bring about the end of destiny, and that if she fails, it will be the triumph of despair forever, and the universe will become nothing more than interlocking machines, blind and empty of thought, feeling, life. Lee brings up that Lyra came all this way simply to rescue Roger, her friend. Serafina suggests that the fates made sure to capture Roger so that Lyra would come all this way as they need her to bring something to her father. They talk a bit more, then Lee goes to sleep. Lyra then wakes up for her turn to chat with Serafina. They talk about how Lord Azra wants to travel to this other world, the nature of witches, and Serafina's relationship with Fartercorum. Then they talk about who York really is, and that had he not been exiled from Svalbard, he would have been King of the Bears. They talk about how Jofer Ragnarsson, the current king of the bears, has been changing the bear kingdom, making things more human-like. Lyra also asks Seraphine if she knows what dust is. Seraphina has heard of it and has seen humans do strange things in their pursuit of it, but it is not in the nature of witches to fret and tear things apart to find out what they are. Lyra goes back to sleep and wakes up to cliff ghasts attacking the balloon. As they are heading lower to the ground, Lyra is knocked out of the basket. She finds herself alone in the snow of Svalbard and is quickly found by a bear and told she is a prisoner. In chapter 19, Lyra is taken to a great stone building and put in the dungeon. There, she asks the alethiometer where Yorick is, and uh, it tells her that the balloon got dragged away, but Yorick is running towards her and Roger is with him. Then a man speaks, and Lyra finds that she was not alone in the cell like she previously thought she was. The man, it turns out, is a scholar from the University of Gloucester. 
Lyra quickly knows exactly what to say to get any information she wants out of this man as tricking scholars is something she has been doing her whole life. She learns <laughs> uh, that the bears won't let Yorick get close as he has been exiled. They'll just kill him from afar. She also learns that Yofer has been bewitched by Mrs. Coulter and basically wants to be human. Um, she remembers hearing a scholar say back in their tiring room that what Yofer Rackneson wanted more than anything was a demon. Eventually, a bear comes to bring them food, and she demands to be brought to the king. The bears listen and bring her to the and bring her to Yofer Rackneson. Lyra convinces Yofer that she has become Yorick's demon through experiments done at Balvanger, but she wants to be his demon, and the only way to accomplish this is for Yofer to defeat Yorick in single combat. She gets information from the alethiometer to convince Yofer, and he agrees to allow Yorick in so they can fight. In Chapter 20, Yorick and Yofer fight. Yorick wins in a surprisingly gory description, where he removes Yofer's lower jaw and is now the king of the bears. Afterwards, Lyra learns from the alethiometer how Mrs. Coulter was slowly gaining control over the bears in Svalbard so she could set up another station there and do experiments that were prevented by human law. Things even worse than what was happening at Bullvanger. Lyra also sees that Mrs. Coulter's on her way and that they need to get to Lord Asriel before she arrives. Uh, yeah, shortest summary yet, because <laughs> most of that chapter is just bears hitting bears. Not that it's bad, it's just boring to summarize. Uh, so what was everybody's favorite part? Alan, you want to go first? Uh, I am a big sucker for exposition in fantasy. It's like the sex scene in a romance novel for me. It's like, <laughs> like that is why I'm here in a fantasy book is to have someone just dump a bunch of lore and world building. And so that conversation between Serafina and Lee and then Serafina and, uh, Lyra is like fantastic. I really, really love like all the stuff that we get there and how they're kind of philosophizing about the metaphysics of their world and how Lee is just like really grumpy about it all. He's like, I'm just making conversation here, but maybe I'm going to get killed and I kind of care about that, you know? Uh, and also, maybe so somebody I, should pay me more. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that too, how he kept on being like, you know, just. Just to pass the time, I'm just going to ask you all these very pointed questions. Like, does he really think that he's pulling the wool over on her eyes on that? Or is he just like trying to be weirdly polite about it? I don't know. I think, you know, he's a he's a good Southern boy. So he's trying to be weirdly polite, but knows that everybody <laughs> knows what he means. Yeah, I definitely yeah, will. So Han Solo, yeah. Up until this point, all we'd had was the word Texas. But I think... Uh, based on like the more we hear of Lee Scoresby's accent and a, a little bit about his world where he comes from, the more it seems like the U.S. South definitely exists, even if like we hear no other mention of it. And it seems like the United States as a big power doesn't quite exist. It's like just the plantation cattle state. Mm hmm. Yeah, because they didn't just send people to Plymouth Rock, right? They, like there was people in the Carolinas and Virginia mm -hmm. and all of that stuff that had nothing to do with the Puritans. So, I mean, and then plenty of other Europeans went over there too, you know, Spanish, French, all that stuff. So there definitely would be European types on the American continent. I see. But it, just it, who knows what it would be. It's just yeah. that the Puritans themselves didn't settle it as like a religious escape. Yeah. So America would just be fundamentally different or wouldn't exist. Like maybe it's just a bunch of little countries or something. Mm. Who knows? I'm really tempted to ask some questions about that, but this isn't 
teach Caitlin American History podcast. <laughs> we can do that one next. <laughs> it's depressing. That's what I would say. Well, I mean, so is Canadian history. Come in, kill the people, take over. Oh, you have the same history. Yeah, we do okay. pretty much. So my favorite bit is Lyra's whole conversation with the scholar from Gloucester in the in the cell because he's gone a little off, you know, because <laughs> presumably because he's been alone in that cell so long. And Lyra just plays him like a fiddle and gets all the information she needs and doesn't. It's just so good. And I especially love when the bit where he says, my demon's tongue can taste probability, you know. And she says, yeah, mine too. When do they feed us, professor? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, uh, yeah, absolutely. Wait, I need actual information here. Please tell me this thing. <laughs> I love how uh, Pullman plays up that like, I mean, we've seen that Lyra's a very skilled manipulator and liar in general, but that, like, she specifically knows how to manipulate scholars best of all. Yeah. And, it's like, so good. Yeah. She's like, I bet, you know, he probably copied your thesis and all of this. And he's like, you, yes, that's right. That's what happened. And I know it better than they do. And she's like, totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. You should be my teacher. I bet you, you would be a great teacher. Yes, I would. Yeah, it's so good. He's, and, and he's batshit crazy. It seems yeah. like uh, Pullman has definitely spent a lot of time around academics, even if he was not an academic himself. <laughs> yep. And knows exactly what makes them angry and things to say to calm them down. <laughs> it's like, yes, my teaching is brilliant. <laughs> Similarly, I love when she's talking to Yofer and just how she knows how to lie to him to get what she wants. It's sort of the same thing. And I, I love that, too. Uh, there are other reasons why I love that, but I no spoilers, so I can't go into it, but. I guess I'll say that it's it's mirrored in a scene in a later book and I think really showcases the journey that Lyra decides, well, we could say Lyra chooses to take herself and the journey, like the personal journey somebody else chooses to take and help. Anyways, I can't really go into it, but it's I like it. Well, I basically picked the same two favorite things that you did and assumed that you would probably pick one of them and I would take the other, and I was not wrong. So I have as my favorite part Lyra talking to Yofer and her, the whole deception of pretending to be Yorick's demon. And I had like vaguely remembered this. Like, so when we were reading the earlier chapters, it had um, jogged my memory in that opening, in the opening couple of chapters when they were talking about how the, the king of the bears wanted a demon most of all. And I was like, oh, yeah. So I remembered that there was some sort of deception in that way. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd forgotten that Lyra actually pretended to be the demon rather than just promising to be able to get him one. Um, right. And it's just, I love that it's so clear that like as much as Yorick really wants to be a human and wants to have a demon he like doesn't actually understand how any of that works <laughs> you mean y yofer or sorry yofer yeah yeah um yes exactly and yeah she's just like she's so brilliant thinking on her feet and so yeah she just pulls it off beautifully it is very well done and it, it shows how she's so good at peppering in things that seem really really plausible like they were doing experiments at Balvanger. Mm -hmm. that that sounds like that could have happened yeah and the whole thing about the um 
And the whole thing about how witches demons can travel farther than yeah, human yeah. demons. You know, she's like clearly pulling from everything that she's experienced in a in a really creative way. It's also cool that like he is an animal shape and so she would be like a human shape. Like it just makes an intuitive kind of sense mm-hmm. that you can just buy it. And he's already got that dummy of Mrs. Coulter that he's kind of like treating like a a demon kind of. So He's set up for this kind of deception. I just genuinely love how smart Lyra is. Yeah. Uh, did we did we have any problematic things? No. I have one that might, but I don't know enough about the culture to say for sure. I have it listed down under our religion section, but when Serafina mentions the name of the the witch goddess of the dead, Yambe Aka, uh, that is an actual goddess from a religion, from the Sami. Sa- Sami. Sa- Sa- sure. Religion. Sami. I don't religion. know about this. Cool. What is it? The Sami are the indigenous people in Scandinavia. Yeah, so they're from like the northern parts of um, Norway and Finland and Sweden, and I think a small part of Russia. Uh, and I am not sure mm. how potentially, like, I, I, maybe they're maybe Pullman is just saying that in this world, this the Sami people are which are the witches, but I don't I don't know if they would the actual Sami people would appreciate. Their religion just being given to these witches. I, I I don't know. That might be problematic. Um. Yeah, that's a good point. I did not do enough research to know that. Although. No, me neither. I did know. Um. Renee Zellweger is probably one of the more famous, uh, like celebrities with Sami heritage. Oh, interesting. I don't know that people group, but I know like the you said like Finnish people and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know like in. Like in European linguistics, there's all these different families, but then there's like groups, like bigger groups um, that kind of tell you like migration patterns from like ancient times. And like we all speak English, which is like an Indo-European language. And the so like all of the evidence points to Indo-Europeans invaded Europe uh, kind of like from the Black Sea. And the people who were there were like those people, the the like the Finnish people and, mm-hmm. and Basque people and Icelandic people. And like their language is like radically different from all of the other European languages. There's just like a few holdout groups, you know, out there mm-hmm. speaking these very different languages and very different cultural heritage. And uh, yeah, so. That's interesting that he would make them the witch people. It kind of makes sense to me, like culturally, that they would have a very distinct non-Christian, um, right. you know, kind of yeah. culture in the middle of the magisterium. That's cool. I think Hungarian, too, is a non-Indo-European language. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I didn't do too much reading, but I did happen to read that the, the Sami language has like roots in common with the Inuit language. So... That's interesting that they're because I, I considering how far apart they are, or at least in my mm-hmm. brain, because I forget that the world is round. <laughs> you, you think of a map yeah. and you think that those two areas aren't really near each other, but they are if you go you know north instead of west or east. So that's interesting. And also just goes to show that the world was once all closer together and more connected physically. Mm-hmm. Well, and that during the Ice Age, things were like, more or less connected. That's what I meant, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's the only potentially problematic bit that stood out to me. There's like some hyperviolence in the fight. It didn't bother me too much, but like, I don't know. I guess there. York does 
participate in cannibalism, but that doesn't bother me. I mean, I it didn't bother me, but it did seem like a little bit more graphic than I was expecting, given um, the like age group that I think this book is usually targeted at, which is, you know, kind of like pretty YA young people. Well, you clearly have not played Mortal Kombat then, because like <laughs> that's he finished him. I mean, that's that's what you do. His finishing move was slicing him open and eating his heart. Yeah. <laughs> and mm. knocked his jaw off. Yummy. It's crazy. Yeah, I think the finishing move was just like biting his throat out, but <laughs> the the heart eating was just a celebration. That's <laughs> fair, up. I guess. Okay, so here's actually something that I'm strangely curious about. Just after that, when Roger shows up, Lyra and Roger eat some of the seal. And she eats the blubber and says it tastes like cream and hazelnuts or something. And I'm like, is that an accurate description of seal blubber? Because that's weird and interesting. I don't know. I took it to mean that she was very hungry. I guess there's that. I mean, I'll say that like at one point in my life, I was uh, like homeless and I ate garbage. And it was really good because I was just happy to eat something. So like, but I don't know that that's what he's doing there. But I I do remember when I read it for the show, I was like, oh, yeah, when you're very hungry, disgusting things are awesome. I'm not even saying that seal blubber is necessarily disgusting. I'm just curious about what it's actually like. I've never eaten raw seal blubber, but I have had like bone marrow and that was kind of what I was imagining it of because it has like a a texture and a taste that's kind of similar to just like pure fat Mm. and like could see it being described as hazelnutty it's like kind of just like I don't know very like rich and fatty Mm. yes well if anybody out there listening has had seal blubber please let us know (laughs) I'm very curious about what it's actually like (laughs) not curious enough to seek it out, especially since seals are cute. So I just don't think I, well, I mean, I eat lamb, so that doesn't matter. Carry on. Oh yeah. Cute things usually taste better. I'm sure it tastes good. Well, I get, I don't enjoy eating things raw, so not even fish. Yeah. So I don't know how I would, I don't think I could do it. I mean, I probably, I mean, in that situation, starving, well, I definitely yes, would. Yes, yes, That's fair. Uh, I don't, I just don't personally expect to be in that situation. Lost in Svalbard and... The only option being a freshly killed seal by my polar bear friend. You know, it could happen. Svalbard is a real place. It's an archipelago that's in the north. Super, super north. Well, if you are going to eat raw meat, it should probably be fresh. At least there was that. That was kind of like my thought as I was reading it. That's true. Yeah. It was still like hot from the seal's body heat. Mm-hmm. Just warms. Watch out for that. Anyways, we need we, we can stop talking about <laughs> cannibalism and um, eating raw meat if we want to. And move on to science. Was there any science? I don't I think so. I didn't really notice anything in this chapter. And I think we decided we would wait until the next section to follow up about string theory and multiverse stuff. Right. That makes sense. Because all you get is that academic who's locked up in terms of like sciencey people. I mean, I He's guess not we, reliable. We could talk about the science of balloons, but... I didn't I didn't research it, so we can't. They're magic. Well, I mean, we are running out of helium. The strategic helium reserve is getting depleted because people keep putting them in fucking birthday balloons, even though helium is a non-renewable element and there's a limited amount and we're just like getting rid of it. And it's really important for scientific and industrial processes. And it makes me mad. Sorry, because um, they use hydrogen in the balloons in this universe. But there's, that was my helium rant for today. 
There we go. That's the science section. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if the Hindenburg just didn't happen in this world. Like there just was never a huge accident that people were like, oh, can't do that anymore. Because hmm. that's kind of why Zeppelins stopped. Or they were just like, God willed it. So sometimes accidents <laughs> happen. Too bad. Those people deserved what happened to them. Or either like nobody ever uh, invented the airplane, you know, either or either they didn't or they were the church decided that that That's was true. too much. I don't know. How do you say that there haven't been airplanes? Because why would they? Yeah. They don't even talk about the possibility of it. He's like, well, if the wind's blowing the right way, but otherwise we're screwed. And nobody says like, well, we'll take an airplane. It's, yeah. it's not a thing. Huh. Interesting. So I guess we've got no choice but to move on to religion. No choice. The boring part that everybody skips through. <laughs> okay, I would uh, like to say that I don't generally say much during these bits because I actually find what you're saying kind of interesting and I'm listening. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> it's not because I've checked out. <laughs> I think we're kind of setting the foundation for um, being able to have a more informed and nuanced conversation once the TV show comes out. Like having this foundation in the philosophy and theology is going to be really helpful. That and also I like going over all this now because a lot of the religion in this first book is kind of in the background. Yeah, and then I agree. In book two and book three, that that stops. It's very much in the foreground, mm-hmm. like very very much. And so it's nice to talk about all the the symbolism and the stuff in the background now, so that later when it's uh. Nope, that's a big spoiler. Uh, well, it's just more explicit. Yeah, really. well, yeah, more expli- explicit. Um, then we can fall back on all this discussion that we've had. Yeah, because hopefully, when people were reading like the conversation between Serafina and Lee, you would be thinking about like she's saying, you know, everything is already faded, and we have to fight against this thing that's going to turn us all into like machines kind of and you hopefully you're thinking about like the stuff that we've been talking about with john calvin and the idea of predestination and like how everybody's locked into that or you're locked into your teleological role or you know like the role you're supposed to fulfill in the world and so um because really when i was like i reread the book before we started the project and i was kind of like what should i talk about with religion cuz like you said it's a little bit thin it's a little bit in the background and i also have like a strong kind of um why do i want to say psychological is not psychological a uh, philosophical like reaction to this book i have a strong philosophical reaction where i'm like i i don't this is the part that makes me a little bit upset with the bears here um i don't like how this goes and i don't like the message um that we get about like the bare citizenry and stuff so like a lot of the things that i've been talking about this whole time have really been setting up me uh complaining at, uh, for this one <laughs> honestly okay well let's let's hear it what don't you like about these bears well <laughs> i think the bears are fine like i really like the fight actually and it's this is like this is such a, like a jrr tolkien thing right like oh secretly one of your uh, party members is the king right right <laughs> the, yes you never knew that i just don't like what it means for the like people who are citizens that we don't get to see or i guess bears who are citizens not people but they're people right yeah. these bears are people yes these bears are people but I want to I want to start off with that um, talk between Serafina and Lee about determinism or um, your fate and and all of that kind of stuff because there is you know we, last time we were talking about 
you know, all kinds of like, do you have any control over this? Like because of science and uh, quantum theory and all of that. Like, so there's a philosophy called physicalism. And uh, basically the idea of physicalism is that if you don't believe in souls or like Descartes said, I think therefore I am, therefore my mind is not my body, therefore there is mind stuff and body stuff. Uh, if you don't believe that, if you just think he's wrong about that, uh, physicalism is for you. You're like there's no gods, there's no supernatural stuff. Only matter exists. And But then if you believe that everything that happens is caused by something else, if you believe in like cause and effect and there's only matter, then that means that there's like a chain of cause and effect that goes all the way back to whatever the first cause was. And everything that follows is like predetermined by the properties of matter. It's like dominoes falling down or something. Right. And there's not really any free will or choice in that kind of like mechanistic physical system. It kind of sounds like what Serafina is talking about, that everything's going to turn into like a giant machine. And that would include like your brain is made out of atoms and the same stuff that like, you know, like everything's made out of the same stuff. And so even the thoughts in your head, presumably under physicalism would not be like, you might feel like you're making choices, but that doesn't mean you are making choices. These they're inevitable uh, because of the way that, matter works it's just like a consequence of whatever started the universe in the big bang it's really depressing and troubling uh if you care about free will <laughs> if and so seraphine is basically mm -hmm. saying that if lyra doesn't do the thing that she's going to do their world is going to like downgrade into a a world ruled by physicalism. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to me, that there's like some kind of hard determinism that is just like gonna take over somehow. I mean, the stakes, it just makes the stakes super high in a way that you're like, whoa, what, what, what? Because <laughs> it's not just their world. She says like every world will be like an interlocking machine that just like does what it does. And a lot of philosophers and scientists believe that that is the nature of our world. And there's all kinds of science to back it up. Like neuroscience has been finding that like when you make choices, they're not necessarily under your control. You think you've made the choice, but actually your brain already like locked things into place before you ever thought you made the choice. Then why is it so hard to choose what to make for dinner? <laughs> like if my brain already knows, can it just send that to me? Can I just not have to think about it? I guess it depends on if Lyra succeeds or not. Um, <laughs> and we haven't but, gotten uh, there, so we haven't observed it. So it's both, and it's not. Anyways, carry on. <laughs> you're gonna. Have, that's right. Every dinner possibility is yeah. simultaneously happening. Well, um, yeah. So on the subject of free will, those dinner possibilities, you really have to have a choice in order to have free will, right? Like if you don't, if there's only one thing to eat, you can't really make a choice. And so that's like a fundamental idea, both in religion and in philosophy of uh, how free will operates. And the same thing for morality. If you can only do evil things, like then that has no moral value. Are you evil if you don't have a choice about being evil or the same thing about being good, right? Can you be said to be good if all of your choices are only uh, good choices, whatever that you know might mean in terms of your morality. So it, like the condition of free will is choice. 
And it's also a condition of morality. And we see this, you know, throughout this whole thing with Lyra, where she's like choosing to tell lies to people. But here in the um, second and third parts of the book, when she's doing that, there's good moral reasons for her to do it. So even though we would consider lying maybe uh, morally wrong in a lot of different moral systems, it's actually like the right moral choice instead of her telling the truth and getting captured and stopped. And her getting captured and stopped would be really bad for the entire universe, apparently. Right. So last time we talked about original sin, and this plays into the idea of free will quite a bit, because like I just said, you can't really make good choices or bad choices uh, if you don't, if you only have one choice. And original sin is the idea that like when Adam and Eve sinned by eating from the tree of knowledge, that um, basically their their sinful nature got encoded into them as people and then has been passed down throughout human history ever since then. So all of us carry the tendency to sin and be immoral because of uh, their original choice. Now, this is not something that the other Abrahamic religions believe. Islam and Judaism do not believe in the idea of original sin. Uh, we don't carry guilt from birth uh, as human beings um, based on what Adam and Eve did. We just don't have access to paradise anymore because of what they did. But our nature is not different. Uh, and the reason that they don't believe that is because if you think about it, it means that you don't have any choice about whether or not you're good. Your only choices are to be bad, because even if you try to do the right thing, you're still an immoral creature that and everything that you do is bad and you're going to go to hell. It doesn't matter what you choose under original sin. There's only one choice that matters, and that's if you convert to Christianity, because through the conversion, then you are born again, uh, literally, you know, in a spiritual sense. Uh, and then after that, you have the ability to choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing because your nature has changed from that original sin nature to a born again nature. This is actually like a theological doctrine called acquired freedom. So you're not free until you make that choice. You're not able to actually make choices uh, until you convert to Christianity. And acquired freedom is in Catholic doctrine too, because I guess I'm used to thinking about the phrase born again as a like Protestant evangelical thing. So born again actually comes from Jesus saying it. Um, it's like directly out of the gospels. Uh, and it's something that, uh, yeah, evangelicals definitely, that is like their saying for conversion. Acquired freedom is the more technical theological term that comes out of Catholicism because they recognize like Catholicism were the ones who Thomas Aquinas came up with the idea of original sin. And he's the one, and he's Catholic, of course. I'm sorry. I, mean, I thought I thought God came up with. Well, you know sorry. what I mean. Sorry. Like, <laughs> Thomas Aquinas figured it out, you know, and wrote it down for us. But yeah, definitely God. Definitely uh, God. That. Yep. <laughs> and so, like, he had to work through the. He, you know, he immediately realized this thing that I'm describing. Like, this isn't me, clearly. <laughs> like, I didn't figure all this shit out, but I've studied it. So like he figured out, okay, well, if there's this thing of original sin and inherited, you know, sinfulness, then 
that means we don't have any choices and that makes God a tyrant. Well, that's a problem. I got to go back and figure out why that's not true. And the reason is because Jesus died for us. And if you, you know, follow all of the um, Christian sacraments, then you can get acquired freedom and you get your choice back. And then God's not a tyrant. And so that is the most important choice that you can make in Christianity, not only for the state of your immortal soul, but because it's the only way to have any choice in your life at all. So that's uh, what you're making for dinner. Yeah. Like no matter what your choice would be, it would be immoral. It wouldn't matter how vegan you are. You're a bad person for whatever you choose. I'm going to eat my chicken stew with a different frame of thought tonight. (laughs) My immoral, my sinful chicken stew. (laughs) Sorry. So the reason, so I, you know, I went from there, like when, when I was reading this, I was thinking about all this free will stuff and the determinism that Serafina and Lee are talking about. And then, but that rolls right into, at least for me, um, what's going on with Yorick here and um, his entire situation and the way that he has been exiled from his community um, for murder, which is something that is like a taboo for bears. They don't murder each other in the circumstance that he was involved with. And that's a little bit like Adam and Eve getting exiled from paradise, which was like the place that the perfect place for human beings and like Adam and Eve getting exiled from paradise is like the whole point of Milton's paradise lost. I mean, it's right there in the title. And that's like the inspiration partially for this universe and this book. So like it's all tied together in my mind, at least. I was I was going to say we're we're definitely going to be revisiting original sin. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a lot. Yeah. And the idea of like Adam and Eve, which of course we haven't mentioned in a long time, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, but there's a lot of Adam and Eve business. Uh, in those books where they're constantly calling those kids like daughter of Eve and son of Adam and that whole idea of like their innocence, which is a state of sinlessness for children. And, and, and the idea that once you hit puberty, you are no longer innocent and, and all of that stuff and mm-hmm. that original sin like sets in on you, like all of that stuff I feel like is related to these books too. Adam and Eve are important is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> turns out i also i can't believe in this bit in the book when seraphina and lee are talking that she was like we've all been fighting in a war and lee pretty much just whistles past that i'd have been like wait (laughs) what war whose side am i on please explain what you're talking about i mean he did ask a little bit he did but they don't really go into it and i'm like i just but But she's like we're on lyra's side and i will be like excuse me like i'm a grown man that that is a tiny child what are what are we talking about yeah so i i guess what i'm saying is that is to be continued the war that we're all fighting in but also since we're talking about original sin i think it's easy to figure out what war we're all fighting in yeah the war right yeah <laughs> the war um <clears throat> and by the way like jewish um in the Jewish religion, as far as Adam and Eve go, they really don't read that story in the same dire way that Christianity does. There's like a lot of it is um, seen as being about growing up and realizing like how complex morality and responsibility and knowledge and agency, how all of that is and how you lose your innocence and like grow up. So basically more like a metaphor. Yeah. 
Yeah, Jewish theology theology is like so beautiful to me because they simultaneously take everything literally and then everything metaphorically at the same time and give it the same weight and value. Uh, but also how you just described it, you could literally describe these books that way. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and I don't think that's an accident. I think that Pullman is, you know, using these themes and he's very much understands the story that he's retelling here. And Adam and Eve are like fundamental to what's going on, even if in, like you said, in this book, it's a little bit more subtle. Mm -hmm. But I do see it, like I said, with the Panzer Bjorn and Yorick's exile, because what I see there as the fundamental sin for Yorick is not just the murder, but that the murder is unbearish, you know, like it's not the way that bears behave. Right. And so that's the real reason he's getting kicked out of the community, because if he's not being like teleologically a bear, then he can't be here. I feel um, like if, if our podcast had like a bingo card, teleology would be that free space in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so important. Uh, I think that people like understand that this idea is like this really insidious idea that you don't belong here because you're not performing your role adequately. And like this is something that is so deeply encoded in our society and in our modern culture that I like, this is what makes me crazy in this story is this idea of teleology being um, applied to people, I guess, or bears in this case, but who are people? Because like, this is how it goes for like our, our group identity, right? Like you say like, I'm an, I'm a millennial, but if you didn't go through the job crash and you don't have like a student debt and you don't like avocado toast, are you really a millennial? Hey, now, <laughs> excuse you. I am a millennial and avocados are fucking disgusting. I don't like avocado toast either, but I can't believe I'm, not a millennial, I'm so. the only one here standing up for avocados. <laughs> <laughs> But you can kind of see what I mean that like there's you talked about this in the first episode on you where you were saying like if you're an academic, you have to kind of not care about your appearance on a certain level because it like sends this signal that like I belong because I care more about whatever my specialty is than I do looking good or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Basically that you like are not devoting enough time to your work if you have time to care about your appearance. Yeah, and that's like a teleological principle that you're like, you have all the correct qualities to be a member of the group. And the more that you exhibit those qualities, the more accepted you are into the group. It's an insidious idea that like group membership matters more than your individual personality. But the really big problem that I see in our society is like, you know, all of... Uh, the Western religions have seen like big church fall off as like people are leaving churches and, and getting out and um, not going back into any kind of religion whatsoever. But when they leave, they're taking like the structure that we've been talking about of like original sin and your teleological place, all of that structure with them. And they're just trading things out from that structure for new things that are like modern secular values 
without really thinking about how that will affect things. It's kind of like if you went from like romance novels to science fiction novels and you were like, oh, this is totally different stuff. But actually, it's like it's still a three act structure. You're still getting like a story catharsis at the end on a certain level. It is kind of the same thing. It's just a completely different flavor uh, of the same thing. And so the problem that I see here with the bears, I think, can be really well illustrated in a story that's like a, a very nicely characterizes like the postmodern problem and the way that we've applied our modern morality to a kind of church structure. It's this um, this playwright named uh, Vaclav Havel wrote an essay called The Power of the Powerless in the 1970s, and he was living in um, Eastern Europe under the control of the USSR. And basically, like he tells a story in one part of the essay, and then he gives his commentary on what he thinks the story means. So I'll quickly summarize this story because I think it's really relevant and it's extremely relevant to like modern times. Um, And I think it it plugs into the story of the bears and everything that bothers me about this. But basically there's these um, people called the green grocers. This is like the grocery store for everyone um, that are like owned by the state. So like, if you're going to go to the grocery store, like everything's owned by the state in under the USSR to be Mm -hmm. clear. And every day when the grocer opens, he hangs a sign in the window that says workers of the world unite. And like the grocer does not believe that the workers of the world are going to unite. And like the people who shop in his grocery store don't believe that the workers of the world are going to unite. And the government doesn't believe that the workers of the world are going to unite. And the government knows that the people know that the workers are not going to unite. And the people know that the government knows, like everybody knows that this sign is a lie. And nobody says anything about it. And he asks the grocer, like, why do you hang the sign when it's a lie? Why are you living this lie? And the grocer basically says, look, well, if I don't hang the sign up, then somebody will call the secret police and they'll inform on me. And then my kids won't be able to go to college. I might go to jail. Bad thing. You know, they'll take my house um, and all of this bad stuff will happen to me. And he's like, yeah, I understand that. Uh, he says, I, I don't have a choice. The government forces me to hang this sign. I'll lose my whole life if I don't do it. There's, I, I have no power to fight back against the government on this. It's the only source of resources in my life. And he points out in the essay part after telling this story that if all of the green grocers pulled down their signs on the same day, and just threw them in the trash forever, that that would be a revolution um, in terms of like how the government would see things. This would be like a major act of rebellion. And so they do have power. Those signs still had power. The government still needed people to see them, and the government still needed people to believe that it's not possible to live without them even though the entire justification for their government system was a lie and everybody knew it. And the idea there is that the grocer is complicit in the system, but he's also a victim of the system and that he wasn't really as powerless 
as he thought he was. Um, and that this is like the postmodern kind of moral condition that all of us, you know, are existing in like a capitalist system that exploits certain people. So we're all complicit in that system, even though we're not really powerful enough to change it necessarily. But if we all worked together simultaneously, we really could change it um, in significant ways. But that's very difficult to get that kind of solidarity um, together. And he kind of like draws out this whole moral scheme where there's this idea of privilege, which I think everybody is um, pretty familiar with the idea of privilege these days, and that there are perpetrators and victims, basically. And, and the amount of power that you have, the more power you have makes you more of a perpetrator in the system, and the less power you have makes you more of a victim in the system. But everybody in the system is complicit with it um, simultaneously. And what you get here, like to go back to this idea of choice and moral possibility, is complicity operates the same way that original sin does. Like we're all, if we're all complicit in the system, it's just like original sin and how you really didn't have a choice to be moral. You really don't have a choice in a capitalist system to like, make the moral choice because no matter what you buy, you're still like participating in the system. Even if you try to buy the most moral thing that you can buy, you're still like helping the system out. You're helping the system to exist at all on, on some level, you're still tacitly approving of it on a certain level. So my, my stew really is sinful. Right. Right. (laughs) Well, that's like the, the saying there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Like you're, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's that's the moral world um, that he kind of draws out. But I think that this moral world's structure comes from a movement away in the West from Christianity. But a movement when we moved away, we didn't have anything to move to, like structurally speaking. And so we took this structure with us of Christianity and we took all of the irrational religious systems out of it. And we replaced it with like complicity, privilege, perpetrators, victims, instead of like sin and redemption. And so like moral action in the postmodern left is to take your privilege and redistribute it to marginalized people. And this is like the only way you're like getting rid of your complicity by doing that. And Getting is like the only action that you can do to try and redeem yourself is to raise up marginalized groups. Now, I'm not saying that this is immoral to do or like the wrong thing to do. I think that we moved away from an immoral system and we did our best to make it moral. The problem that I have with this structure, I'll, I'll get to in a minute, but I'm just trying to illustrate how the structure is roughly uh, equivalent. And like on the even on the right, the idea of good moral action is to go back to like a more rule-based moral structure that applies to everyone equally and just kind of ignore privilege. Um, just pretend like it doesn't exist to try and as a means of trying to get rid of this postmodern problem. Cause it's all very shades of gray once everybody's complicit in it. And I feel like Mrs. Coulter is like the best example of this in the story and why she like comes off as especially evil to us 
because she is happy to be complicit and um and uses all of that power on the most vulnerable people she kind of punches down right she's never mm-hmm. punching up and she exploits you know like poor people and children as and the contrast to that would be like Lyra who is like a postmodern hero because she's not very complicit at all she doesn't have very much power in this system but she you know she does have a little bit when she starts out she's has all those thoughts about female scholars and how the non-Jordan children are like not as good as her. Right. So like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that like Pullman is directly thinking about this particular idea of postmodern structure, but I think that all of us just kind of understand that this is how morality works in our culture. Now that if you have power, then you're suspect. Like we, we look at you and everything that you do as what evil shit are you going to get up to next? Uh, we don't expect you to do the right thing. And it, it's actually maybe not very possible for you to do the right thing. If you're like a billionaire and be like, it doesn't matter. Like if you try to build a submarine to <laughs> help trapped uh, boy scouts on the other side of the world, you can never be a good person because you're an asshole billionaire. There's something I haven't thought about in a while. Right. The dated reference. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you see Lyra going through this story trying to join groups that she's not authentically a part of over and over where she wants to go North with Lord Asriel. She wants to be like Mrs. Coulter and be in her circle. She's then she thinks that, Oh, I'm definitely Egyptian. And after a week, I'm definitely a sailor. And like, it never, it never works because she's not really a part of those groups. And authenticity is really the interchange. I think with this idea of being born again, that when you are authentically a part of the group that you're in, like then it's okay to be like in the group. Then you have choices within the context of that group. But if you're not authentically part of that group, everything that you do is morally suspect when you're trying to be in the group. Like Lyra cannot be Egyptian because she's not Egyptian. Everything that she does when she's trying to be Egyptian is like wrong because that's not who she is. And that's the whole thing with, these bears, right? Like that's the bear is trying to be a human and he's not a human. And so that's not okay. And the reason that Yorick becoming the king is good is because he changes their culture back to being bearish. And that's like a heroic act in a postmodern sense. But to me, it's like kind of arbitrary. Why, why is it better to have one king or the other? What about what these bears want? Like, why is it, you know, all these bears were like, build a human palace. Okay, boss, we'll build a human palace. And now the guy who told you to do that got his face knocked off and it's like, tear down the human palace. Okay, boss, we'll tear down the human palace. And it's (laughs) like they don't have a choice but to do what the king says because they have to be in the group. They have to like the like the group membership is the most important thing here that to authentically be in the group is the only way to have any kind of moral choice. And so you're like, there's no way to get out of that complicit system and you you have to be obedient to it. You have to turn yourself from a person into a thing that serves whatever the group interest is rather than like whatever your personal interest would be And these. So I don't know, this is like postmodernism to me. There's all these barriers to being your authentic self and um, 
And instead you, because you're like dragged down by this history and by all of the, the bad things and the exploitation that has happened and you have no choice, but to be in the group and, or otherwise you're going to get kicked out of your group the way that Adam and Eve got kicked out of Eden. And so we're just, we, we get stuck in these bubbles and the really bad thing about these bubbles is the stuff that I was talking about last time with like uh, Blick, where you have these irrational beliefs that will cut you off um, from information outside of the group. I mean, that's the real reason that the structure exists, especially in evangelical culture. It's to cut you off. You know, you watch Christian movies and listen to Christian music and read Christian books. And all of that is there to inhibit your ability to leave the group, but also to inhibit the ability of the group to reform itself and to change and evolve uh, to, to meet whatever the modern needs of the people are, the way that a religion should be meeting the needs of its members. Instead, it like is working very hard to remain static and to remain disconnected from everyone else. And it's exploiting the people in the group in order to do that, which is extremely poisonous for all of the members. And the problem here is that we've recapitulated that structure throughout our entire secular society. And we have all of these bubbled up groups that it's much more moral now, like we're including many more people, like we care about, you know, uh, LGBTQ people and people of color and, and all of that is very good. And but at the same time, we're all extremely cut off from each other and we're stuck in structures that are designed to inhibit our ability to uh, reform them and evolve and synthesize in ways that would be more revolutionary and allow us to change the larger structures that are um, messing our society up. So like I see it as a really big problem and this uh, whole part like kind of uh, reinforces the idea of it in a way that makes me grumpy. So <laughs> I uh, just about the bear thing. Mm -hmm. It didn't bother me at all. I, now that you say that, that it is just like they're exchanging one man in power for another man in power and they just do whatever they're told. Um, but it didn't bother me at all because of two things. One, um, when Lyra's there, she does specifically say that she very clearly got the image that nobody really knew what was going on under Yofer Rackneson. You know, like mm -hmm. rules changed. They didn't know what to say or what to do. And they just sort of hoped. And it, it made it sound very much like if they did the wrong thing, punishment was extreme. So Yeah, yeah. They're they're definitely being coerced. Yeah. You know. And then yeah, there was I agree. So so the implication then being that when Yorick becomes the king, the other bears will actually be authentically themselves. That they're, It's not really yeah. just exchanging one ruler for another. Like, the society will be fundamentally different in some way. Yeah. And the other, the other thing being, like, it's kind of set up like Mrs. Coulter came in and, uh, for lack of a better term, seduced Yofer Rackness into her way of thinking. V oh yeah very definitely similarly to how satan entered the uh garden of eden yeah yeah right for sure and yeah. fucked it all up and then no that's really good yeah you you could make a reference about how lyra comes in and saves everyone and i, I don't think i really want to make a lyra's jesus connection here but you could mm-hmm 
Yeah, it would be kind of like between her and uh, Yorick, really. Yeah, I guess he, in he a way, like York, heavy York was when he was exiled. Like they say, he's not a bear anymore, and which is why they originally wouldn't even give him the option of coming close. They would just kill him from afar with like with fire. Mm-hmm. But through everything that happens, he is sort of reborn as a as a bear and the king right. of the bears. Yeah. So I guess yeah. it it is a little bit more that York is is bear Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And you'll notice he's born again through his authenticity, through his, like, he refuses to try and be human, like, yeah. the way that he he fights the duel the way that bears fight the duel, and, and then he immediately returns their culture back to its roots. And th- so his, his authenticity is what allows him to be reborn. I don't think that Pullman's doing this on purpose. I think these are unconscious, like, we've internalized these ideas in these structures like so deeply that Pullman is just recapitulating this. Like I, I totally agree that Mrs. Coulter is a Satan like uh, figure in their culture and is like invaded their bubble and is corrupting it. And um, I can see Philip doing that on purpose. I, I don't yeah, think he was going for bear Jesus, but yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's just, you know, like teleology is great for like figuring out if you have a good cell phone or a good uh, bowl of chicken soup, but it's not good when you apply it to people because then you are treating people like things. And that's exactly what Serafino was talking about, where the whole world is going to become this giant machine. Like we are not machines. We are people. We need to think of ourselves as people and treat each other like people and not pretend as if we can be the very best most authentic whatever category group or job or you know whatever it's good to like measure yourself you know but not you you're never going to be that archetype um, because you're a person and so it's it's a insidious bad idea teleology and i i think that the story recapitulates it a little bit unconsciously but i think actually in the long run especially pullman is really good about the like the bad effects of teleology but i just wanted to like i've been harping on it so much because i want people to understand what it is and to be able to see it out there in the world and in the story and and maybe like think a little bit harder about it and reject it hopefully <laughs> but it's become our our catchphrase now so we have yeah. to love it <laughs> well, our, our our podcast is teleologically meant to be about teleology. Oh no! <laughs> what have I done? No. Every time Lyra does something like inexplicably, like destiny led, or you know, when she's just like, "Oh, I just you know, like had to wake up and go look out at the aurora, and then I just happened to see all of these witches flying overhead or whatever." <laughs> it's just like oh, fucking teleology. Teleology. <laughs> Right. fulfilling her fucking ultimate purpose. <laughs> and actually, I did have one other comment while we're kind of talking about still talking about the the battle between the bears and like exchanging the rulers. Um cuz last episode we talked a little bit about whether or not we thought the TV show would try and like bring in comparisons to the current modern political situation. And I feel mm-hmm. like this is one of the places where they could actually try and do that in terms of like having a an inept narcissistic ruler who uh, 
you know, oh, came through. He's going to make Svalbard great again. Yeah, ex- <laughs> something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so it's I'm, I, I'm all for this. But keep in mind that this is written and produced by English people who also do have political problems right now. And maybe they want to say something about their own politics. I don't. I mean, the Brexit metaphor for Svalbard isn't quite as obvious to me, but I'm sure they'll think oh, no, of something. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, I, uh, that Svalbard wants to leave. No, um, <laughs> I, I'm just saying not everybody writing pop culture right now thinks in terms of American politics. No, but like most of the world is at least somewhat aware of American politics most of the time. And especially now, given that our president is who he fucking is, like, I don't know. Yeah, they're having a constitutional crisis over there, too, right now. And uh, they're, you know, their right wing is is being pretty crazy as well. So I don't even think you'd have to stretch very far to be like, it's weird because, you know, he wants to, like, integrate their society. And that's, like, considered bad. It is kind of weird if you think about it like that. I think maybe that's part of what bothers me too, because like for me, I want like a larger goal of like, there's a lot of injustice that we need to like deal with in our, in our collective world history and especially like in Western history. But ultimately I would like there to be like some kind of synthesis, not like a subsuming of other people's cultures and stuff, but like a like a uniform culture. I don't want that, but like, it would be nice to like aim towards, can we, can we all be a people? And like, that's kind of what the bears are reaching for there to like, we're going to join human society and be people together with them. And it's like, no, that's bad. Don't do that. And like, that's a little bit of a weird message to me. Mm, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I necessarily agree. I I, I like the idea more of not well, I don't know. It's hard to say. I like the idea of cultures staying separate so that they can stay themselves. But I do also like the idea of obviously having good relations and and not thinking of human beings as other. Yeah, so that's what I want to get away from. Yeah, so it's kind of, it. it's difficult to think of what the best, what the best place would be there. I mean, obviously the best place would just be don't be assholes, but... As we've seen, that's never going to happen. Maybe. Hopefully we get over it. I don't know. Somebody has to come up with a new structure. But I'm sure there's a lot of countries out there that look back on the past, you know, 90 years or whatever and kind of wish that America had just stayed isolationist, you know, Mm, just minded their own goddamn business. So some of us and other countries, too, I'm sure. But uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. (laughs) I think that your metaphor about Mrs. Coulter being Satan was definitely something that I noticed that her tactics are colonialism tactics, um, like a hundred percent, like we're going to find the minority power in the group and then we're going to fund them and we're going to groom them and then we're going to come in and replace them. And we're just going to set up our own institutions in the same spot and make their people into our workers. Like, it's 100% colonialism. I don't think it's an accident at all what Pullman does there. They're like, Mrs. Coulter is so evil. Like, she, she is. 
definitely and, the Satan. And again, like they say that she has an army of, of Tartars that she was going to bring in and take over. And again, these are the people that the Magisterium was almost at war with at the beginning. Yeah. So that is very confusing to me. Do we have anything uh, else that we wanted to talk about? Serafina and Frater Quorum? Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about that, but I was... Oh. <laughs> Did you guys want to talk about that at all? Yeah. And I kind of want to talk about... Um, we, this is the chapter where we find out about the whole, like, um, which is... Like why witches are all women and and yes. like the whole the way they interact with humans. Yeah, it's so interesting. I love this. Yes. So I, I wanted to bring up uh Serafina and Farterkorm's relationship. Um, because through that we do learn a lot about the witches and that they they have relationships with men if they want and have children with them, but they can't ever spend their life with a man because men age and much slower than the witches because they live for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then if they have male children, they're human. But if they have female children, they're witches. Right. And so like, it's not something you can learn, right? It's, it seems to be like intrinsic. Yes. Which is really interesting. Like it's not just cultural. It seems to be like, who knows? Like it's really weird. And so are there demons fundamentally different on some level because of that? Like are the, can the male you know, can the can the guys' demons separate from them, or are they just normal? Like, do they just seem to be? Human, I can give so. you an answer to that. <laughs> I I don't remember this stuff, and I was they like, can't. Oh, this is cool. They can't. You find out why that happens. You find out about how okay. that all happens. You so, mean okay? They're just you find out mm-hmm. why the witch demons can separate. Yes, you do. Okay. So, so yeah, the the men are just normal normal human being. Uh, like uh, the consul that we met. He's he's a child of right. a witch, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's still involved in the culture, but has to exist outside of it because he's a man. I see. And then, uh, and through that, we also find out that Seraphine is the queen of her clan, and that there are different clans, and presumably each one has a different queen. And then we learn a lot about how she felt about Fartercorn when they were young, or when he was young. She still looks young, and how she was very, how they were very much in love, and how she wished she could change her very nature so that she could have stayed with him and and been with him and she also mentions how she doesn't want to see him now because she thinks it would just bring shame to him and sadness to her and it's better if they just never see each other again so sad and how just in general they are unable to be together due to their natures and again for people who've read the whole series this sounds very parallel to some other characters and how i mentioned before the similarity that Fartercorm's demon is to another demon, I, it, it just seems very parallel to me. That's all. So I agree on one level. It's like a very sad and touching and romantic story. But part of me in the back of my brain is like, oh, it's like a really awesome, extraordinary woman who wants to give up like all of her power to be with a fairly ordinary <laughs> dude. That's awesome. <laughs> Okay, so I I thought that too, (laughs) but this feminist killjoy moment has been brought to you by. (laughs) No, I thought that too, but ultimately that's, it's a feeling that she has. Like she knows he can't be a witch. Like he can't join her in there. He can't grab a cloud pine and fly around with her. So there's, so that's probably just what she was thinking in the moment. And ultimately when she needs to, she goes back to be queen. Like, no matter how sad it makes her, she doesn't stay with him. 
Yeah. So she doesn't pull an Arwen. Yeah. And <laughs> sorry, it's true. And also, like when she says that she's staying away from him, it's not she's not staying away from him to protect her own feelings. She's staying away from him to protect his ego. Like, come on. You don't think it's I a little bit that. of both? I mean, sure. I just think a woman would have written it differently. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, 100%. But I, I do think that Serafina doesn't want to see him as much as she thinks he doesn't want to see her. She just doesn't say that. There's a lot of sadness um, in her. And also- the, I'm listening to the audiobook and the and the actress who does that does a really good job of transmitting that sadness when she talks about it, too. Yeah, she, she's really good. I will say- what you said about the Killjoy thing about her wanting to give up everything for a man. I mean, there is a lot of bad feelings about women in the feminist movement about them wanting to be homemakers or, you know, not wanting to have jobs and to just be a wife. And I think that that is a legitimate choice that some people truly want. And it's shitty that it is thought less of because women have to be uh, whatever, powerful and independent and all. You, you know what I mean? Like. No, that's it, fair. Like, cho you know, choice feminism is absolutely the right feminism, and people should be able to to do what they want. Yeah, like, I don't think that it would have been right for Serafina to choose that. I don't think she would have been happy ultimately. But at the time, she was in love enough that she thought it was what, it, what she wanted. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I do agree that it was very obviously written by a man, but... <laughs> And what you just said there about like feminism and people getting mad about it is exactly the the thing that I just went on that very long rant about about right yes performing your group and all of that give up what you want to fit into the group so you can be there and have choices which I mean it's kind of what Serafina did she gave up want want being yep. with Farterkorm to go back and be with her clan but again I do think just from what we know about her I do think she. I don't think she would have been happy ultimately with Farterkorm having given everything up because she talks about how witches feel about flying and how they feel feeling the moon and the stars on them and all that sort of thing. And in a way, she would have been giving all that up too. Right. So there's other things at play, but yeah. And there's also the child they lost. And that, that yeah, can be that very Oh, yeah. No, that's totally fair. Losing a child's... Um, is really hard and like causes a lot of marriages to fail. Yeah. And and she talks about how when the witches have male children because they have the lifespans of normal humans, even if they live to an old age, they seem to just sort of flicker in front of their eyes. So losing one when he was still a child, she like it was so fast for her and Right. And I'm not saying that she was less attached. I'm saying that it was so brief that she had had this child that she loved a lot in her life. And that's that's just really sad. It's a good like micro story that gets put in here. It's really good. Yeah. Any anybody else have anything they wanted to talk about from these chapters? No, I just thought it was interesting that up until this point, we've always been led to believe that Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter have different endgames and and are being motivated by different things. And then in this chapter um, the book kind of switches a little bit and makes it seem like they actually have the same goal. They just want to be the one to do it first. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting and 
again, given that I only have a vague recollection of the ending, um, kind of surprised me. So wait, I where do why do you think they want the same thing? Uh, I, well, the text actually says that. I mean, it's possible that the text is being misleading, but yeah, I think it does say something. But who like says that? that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember if it. It's not the narrator. Um, it must be Serafina. I'm assuming it might be. I can't remember. Oh, then I would bring up that when Serafina is talking about what Lyra is doing in the north, and that she has to bring something to Lord Azriel, she is very unsure when she's saying that too like in everything mm. else that she says to lee she's very confident and very sure but when she's talking about lyra bringing something to lord asriel she's less sure and even when um when lyra asks the alethiometer and the alethiometer says she has to bring something to lord asriel and she assumes it is the le- the alethiometer she then thinks but that the- that isn't quite right because she knows how the alethiometer refers to itself and this was something mm-hmm. different yeah, so right. I did remember. Yeah, I did notice that. I'm not sure where it says it. It might be an assumption that Lyra is making. Yeah, I can't remember. I do remember what you're talking about, though. I do. I definitely remember that. I remember reading it too. Coleman wants us to feel that way about her coming there. That she's trying to scoop Asriel on on a certain level. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't personally think she is. Right. Yeah. Whether whether that's reality or not, I think that's what we are set up to believe. It is at least at the very least, I think it's like foreshadowing that maybe Lord Azrael isn't as on the up and up as we've thought so far. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's done a ton of work to like rehabilitate Azrael in Lyra's eyes or like our eyes. Right. With mm-hmm. like he's associated everybody who's good in the book with. Asriel at this point mm-hmm. and and right. set him up so much as in opposition to mrs coulter who's literally satan or figuratively the satan. worst person yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 bear satan bear satan i shit i can't find it maybe we should just sign off <laughs> no well i think this was an interesting conversation because what does mrs coulter want really what does lord Asriel want like uh, do we even know yeah, I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't think you could. Yeah. Genuinely, I've read these books a million times, and I'm like, what does Mrs. Coulter want? Like, you know, I don't even think Mrs. Coulter knows. You know, For like, real. She wants, she wants power. She wants respect she, and control. But what does she want? What is her end game? I don't know. I don't think she knows. Yeah. I think, well, I think, ooh, this feels like a, anti-feminist reading but i feel like miss coulter wants power because she's trying to like prove that she can move around in the world of men and like be as worthy as like all of these men who she's competing with i i don't disagree with that to a point like i think that's part of why she wants power is really to show up all these men especially since especially coming from where her story began but throughout the books like her her motivations either they either change or they become more clear to the reader I, i honestly don't know which and it's it's clear that right now mrs coulter is going through some shit like we don't see it here but i i wish we kind of got bits of this from her point of view because it would be very interesting to see what she is thinking when she's coming after lyra like what 
why does she want Lyra? That is something I hope for in the show, you know, that we spend more time with characters who aren't Lyra and get to like explore them and to have a even more three-dimensional Mrs. Coulter would be, would be pretty cool. So maybe they can do that, you know, in the show. Why, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Really? I actually think Mrs. Coulter is a little bit more scary and evil, not knowing her motivations and not knowing what she wants. Oh, sure. Like all this conversation is just stuff that I want for me. I think the story works better not knowing these things about her. You can have like, uh, you know, it would it would be kind of interesting to have the female characters never get to do this. We talk about this on our American God show. There's a character named Laura on that show where you get the kind of Walter White or like Tony Soprano type character where they're like, you sympathize with them, but you recognize that like everything they're doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. And and just women just don't get to be that character so often. So I'm kind of into like a sad Darth Vader woman character. I don't know. <laughs> like into it, into it? Well, no, 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 no. Like, Story wise. Like, I think that would be cool to like. Sorry. No, I'm just, just giving you done. a hard time. If you were, it kink. wouldn't be no. a problem. <laughs> it's not my kink. I, I agree uh, that we we should have more women like that, especially like um like those two characters who what's the word um that like anti heroes and stuff, uh, yeah or... but uh, what am I trying to say that they're the main character that they hold the story oh know? that's true that's a good point I don't think Mrs Coulter is that because she is just straight up an evil bitch mm-hmm. she's the antagonist yeah yeah and she's got. She just has, well, as of right now in this book, she is just straight up an evil bitch. And I just know where she is going. And I know that there's like thoughts happening in her head. And like anytime she's grabbing for Lyra, I'm like, but why? Why are you going through all of this just to get Lyra? Teleology. No. (laughs) (laughs) Do, Do you guys, do you have a guess as to why she's after Lyra? Don't say teleology. No, no, I don't actually think that's why. I mean, you. there's a hint from earlier that maybe she, like, regrets losing Lyra, you know, for her entire life. This, this story is kind of, like, reflected in the Serafina fodder quorum story where they lost their child and Lyra lost her parents and, like, does she want Lyra to be her own? I mean, that is really the reason that I keep saying the Darth Vader thing to like, you know, join me and we'll control the universe together. Uh, you yeah. Know, does she want to make Lyra her little Mrs. Coulter, her mini me? You know, I think on some level she definitely does. And you kind of see that um, when she first gets custody of Lyra earlier in the book. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so who knows? But does she know about the prophecy? It's weird who knows about this witch prophecy and who doesn't. Because, like, why does the Jordan College guy know that? Like, these witches stand outside the magisterial system. So, like, that's interesting. Maybe he he also slept with a witch when he was young. (laughs) (laughs) So join us next time. We'll be talking about chapters 21 to 23, which is the end of the book. Yay! And if you like our show, please take some time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. 
I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And don't forget to eat the heart of your enemies after defeating them in single combat.